Beloved congregation, will you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9 and verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Well, this man Isaiah wrote these prophecies under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as we've seen in this series, was writing in dark times. Dark times of the Lord's judgment upon the church and the people of God for their sins. Times of spiritual backsliding and increasing apostasy. More than that, there was also the immediate future that he looked ahead to. The exile of the people of God into a foreign country, and the removal of the means of grace from them. Dark times that Isaiah wrote, and yet we've seen throughout this series that he sustained his faith by looking ahead to the day of the coming of God's chosen king. You see, in this verse, he longs for the day when indeed the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, would come to redeem his people. The one of whom we have been speaking in this series is one who is born as a mere child and yet is given as an everlasting son. He has the fourfold name of Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, revealing his manifold greatness as perfectly suited to be a Savior unto his people. And here in verse 7, we've begun to see that something of the character of the kingdom which he has come to bring about Last time we especially focused upon those words concerning the throne of David. The throne of David. And we began to see that packed into those words is a reference to the covenant which God made with King David and his descendants. It was through the Davidic line that the that the glory of God and the glory of his church would be realized. God, having pledged himself in this covenant unto David and to his line, he was revealing in this verse that indeed that would be realized and fulfilled in the greater son of David, the final Davidic king, this one who is the God-man Messiah. And 
It's not just in this verse, but in many verses in this, um, in this book. That this comes out and again and again. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is coming. Let me just point you to two other cases where that is the case. Isaiah 32, verses 1 and 2. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment, and a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, and as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. And then the chapter following that, Isaiah 33, verse 17, Thy eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off. And... It may seem as as though Isaiah is overemphasizing the first coming of the Lord Jesus in this. After all, it wasn't the case that the saints of Jesus Christ were without salvation before his coming in the flesh. Indeed, there were many believers who knew the salvation of Jesus Christ by faith before that time. Nor is it the case that after his coming, the church is without setbacks or difficulties or discouragements. I'm sure whether you would think about your own life or your own experiences with the people of God, there'd be many things that might fill you with similar discouragements such that Isaiah um, would relate to. And yet for Isaiah... It was the times in which we live after the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh that he especially yearned to see. The thing that he would encourage himself with was considering this time, the time in which we live, when Jesus Christ's reign has begun in great power and might. It ought to make us think How much have we perhaps fallen into the lies of the devil? How much have we who live in glorious and great times, the days in which the kingdom of Jesus Christ is on the move, how much have we fallen into the trap of unbiblical and faithless thinking that is not patterned after what the scriptures would teach us? It's a question that absorbed me as I reflected upon the words in verse seven of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end. I wish to focus particularly on what that section of the verse means. What is the increase spoken of here concerning the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Well, I'd like to divide that up under two headings. First, we'll look at the promise given. And second, we'll look at the promise fulfilled. First, the promise given and then the promise fulfilled. Well, whenever I'm zeroing in on a particular word like this, what I like to do is obviously look at the Hebrew 
language, look at the different uses of it, and also look at other places in the Hebrew where that word is used. What does that mean, the increase of his government and peace? Well, the word there has the idea of abundance, a, a great um, a great amount of something. And there it is in the noun form, but it's very rarely used in the noun form. More often it's used as a verb or a different form of the word is, is used as a verb. And there's two places, as I was looking at the study of, of that word, where it comes up in verses that will be very familiar to you. One would, have, would be in Genesis chapter 3, right after that glorious promise of the seed of the woman, where God, pronouncing judgment over the devil, says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. But right after that, you have uh, this uh, word pronounced over the woman, who would be called Eve. Genesis 3, verse 16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception and sorrow. Thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So one of the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin was that the sorrow, the sadness of bearing children would be greatly increased. And I think by implication, all manner of suffering would enter into the most beautiful of relationships, both bringing children into the world and raising them, as well as all other family relationships. Indeed, all every area of life is now filled with pain and sorrow and suffering. It's as though in that first sin you have an atom bomb blasting off and leaving all manner of corruption and decay in its wake. The curse of sin greatly multiplying, increasing sorrow. Well, if that was the result of the broken covenant of works with Adam and Eve, you also have a use of that word in reference to God's gracious covenant. God's gracious covenant, which of course concerned that seed of the woman we just spoke about, but was later uh, revealed unto Abraham. And there in Genesis 22, where you have the account of Abraham ascending the Mount Moriah upon the instruction of the Lord to sacrifice his son Isaac. He raises up the knife to put in that blow, and then the angel stops him. But it also says in Genesis 22, a special blessing upon Abraham. And uh, in Genesis 22, verse 15, the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast withheld thy son, thine, hath not withheld thine son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. 
and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Well, there you have that word multiplying again, but it's the same word that Isaiah uses for increase, only in the case of Genesis, it's used in the verbal form. And there's allusion there, isn't there, to the idea that the seed of uh, of God's promise will increase until it's more numerous than the stars of the heaven and the sand on the seashore. A great, massive increase. I don't know if you've ever gone out of the city, gone way out into the countryside, looked up at the stars, seen all those brilliant lights in the sky, more than can be numbered. Well, that's the idea of the increase. A remarkable thing, considering at that point Abraham had only Isaac before him, but by faith he was able to see the greater promise of the seed being multiplied. Well, I think you see already that Isaiah, in using that word, is tapping into the great history of God's gracious dealings with his church. He's wanting us to think along these lines. God has promised an increase, but as we saw in our last message uh, concerning this text, that was to be realized through the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant, which establishes a particular promise of kingship given to David, his son Solomon, through all of their descendants and ultimately being realized in the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we said last time, it operates not only to show the, the work of God in history to bring Jesus into the world, but as you see these promises given to this line of kings, you also see spiritual pictures, types of what the new uh, covenant kingdom of Jesus will look like. We referenced last time Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. And there the prophet Nathan said to David, Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Not through human might or wisdom, no. The sovereign promise of God is the foundation here. And... Let me refer to you to a number of other places where this is referred to in the book of Psalms. The idea of the kingdom of this covenant promise being without end. Psalm 89 verses 35 to 37. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever and his Throne, his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. This whole order of creation, it may seem very permanent. The stars and the sun and the moons and all operating in their orbits. And yet God is saying here that the very same a Lord who governs those realms of nature will also ensure that his kingdom will never end. Of course, Psalm 72 
is especially prominent here. If you would read that psalm, it's, it's almost saturated with the kind of language we see in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Let me refer you to a number of verses there, and it may be profitable to, to read along in Psalm 72. Beginning at verse 1, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. So there you have a promise given to the son of David. It goes on, He shall judge the people with righteousness, and thy people with judgment. The mountains shall, shall bring peace to the people, and the little hills by righteousness. Now go down to verse 7. In his days shall the righteous flourish in abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. What human kingdom could this be spoken of? It it cannot. It's only realized in the coming Messiah. And then verse 8. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Of course, that phrase, he shall have dominion from sea to sea, is actually on the coat of arms of our Nation for Premier Tilly of New Brunswick, one of the fathers of Canadian Federation, selected that as the verse of Canada, which is why the country is called the Dominion of Canada. And would that we would live up to this name that is given here, a name that points us towards the authority of Jesus Christ over all nations. What amazing promises contained. Here, that the enemies of Christ will lick the dust, that kings from every nation will offer him gifts and fall down before him and serve him. These are the things that are spoken of here. The coming of Jesus Christ was not just a private event, as though it had significance only to Christians like You and I, as though Jesus had only come to reign in our hearts and to bring us unto heaven. No, you see, the coming of Jesus Christ into the world is the coming of a conquering king over all nations. The command is given and even the promise given here that all nations must and will serve Jesus Christ. No authority is higher than that of God. No authority can resist that of God. No power can resist his will. And this is the word and will of the sovereign God that Jesus Christ will reign over all nations. We already looked at Psalm 45 in a previous message, but let me also remind you what it says in that uh, Psalm verses 4 and 6. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, 
is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. If you look at that closely, it's actually referring to the king as himself, God, showing it as a divine king that is being spoken of here. He rides forth prosperously, mightily, victoriously. He is conquering the hearts of his people, subduing and destroying his enemies. This is the promise of God. Now, it's one thing to have these things spoken about in prophecy, but obviously the word of God speaks in some very vivid images so that we would rightly understand the significance of those. Perhaps the uh, most um, well-known one is from the book of Daniel, where you'll remember King Nebuchadnezzar had that dream. Children, maybe you remember that as well. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he said that he would slay all of the wise men in his land unless they could both tell him the dream and the meaning of it. Well, a pretty hard challenge, and yet the Lord's man, Daniel, he was up to the task. He had it revealed to his servant, Daniel, and then he came and told the king his dream and the meaning of it. It was a dream, you see, where there was this great statue, and the, the head of the statue was of gold, and the, the breast and, and the arms were made of silver, and the belly and thighs were made of brass, the legs were made of iron, and the feet were part, of, were part iron and part clay. And upon seeing this, this great statue, all of a sudden it says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 34, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them in pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Shocking thing. The stone comes down from the mountain, smashes this statue to smithereens, and then grows to a mountain that fills the whole earth. Well, what could that possibly mean? Well, David gives interpretation to the image, saying that each one of these parts of the statue represents different kingdoms of the world. You have Babylon, you have the Medo-Persian Empire, you have the, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the, the descendants of the Roman Empire, our own uh, nations of Europe, and so forth. All of human history summarized in this statue, all the great and mighty empires. And what of that stone made without hands? Well, Daniel interpreted it for that king. And he said in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Very similar language to our text here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. And you see these two things coming together, both the 
duration of the kingdom. It will last forever. And the increase of it, it will grow and expand. But now we see that it comes with this hard edge, this promise. And that is that the victory and the increase of this kingdom, which will never be thwarted or destroyed, it comes at the weakening and the destruction of all the kingdoms that would oppose it. Look at all those mighty empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Greek Empire, Medo-Persian, Roman, one after another, seeming to be invincible, seeming to have all the nations of the world under their grip, and now they are just in the dustbin of history. What has happened? Well, God has been in it. He has been bringing those nations to nothing to tell you that there is only one kingdom that will last forever, and that is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all those kingdoms built upon idolatry and wickedness and injustice, they will never withstand the mighty power of God and Jesus Christ. Jesus will reign victorious over all competitors. Later on in that book of Daniel, where The parallel prophecy given of the Son of Man coming to rule is is given in the same kind of language as used. Daniel 7 verse 14, And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Amazing prophecies here. And we see that picture of the mountain growing and expanding, conquering and destroying, filling the whole earth. That is the picture we are to think of when we see the increase of this kingdom. Now, these promises are indeed glorious, but you might say these only seem to be concerning the Old Testament scriptures. Perhaps uh, if we get that picture, we will get imbalanced for the New Testament surely speaks in a different way. But in fact, you look at how Jesus himself spoke and taught and he taps into these exact same themes concerning what his kingdom means. Let me show you what I mean. Two parables found in Matthew chapter 13. If you want to turn there, Matthew 13, beginning at verse 31. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in the earth, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Look at that tiny seed, the smallest of all seeds, seeming to just to be a little speck of dirt or dust, and then you put that into the ground, and out emerges a sapling. And from that sapling emerges a small tree. And from that small tree gets a bigger tree until the growth and the growth of it gradually emerges into this behemoth grand tree, which even the birds of the air can rest in. 
What is it saying? Well, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, it starts small, but it grows and it grows. It, it grows into such a mighty kingdom that even the creatures of the world take shelter under it. We're talking about something that shapes and moves history, something about which nothing can be the same after, for it is that which all history subserves, the growth of Jesus Christ's kingdom of grace. The theme there is that it's gradual. It increases, but there's only one way it's going, bigger, greater, grander. Right after that, he uses another parable, through the illustration of a woman cooking. There, verse 33 of Matthew 13. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in measures of meal till the whole was leavened. A tiny bit of leaven put into that dough until it expands into a wonderful loaf of bread. You see how it permeates the whole of the dough until it is all brought into completion. The idea here is the kingdom of Christ will permeate all things. It will influence and change all things with its radically different principle, a principle of grace found in his person and work. Thus we have here a glorious promise, congregation. I've shown it to you in the uh, words of prophecy. I've shown it in these vivid illustrations. The mountain, the tree, the leaven. And all of it is to shape how we think about the times in which we live. Because the times in which we live are those which... Isaiah spoke about of the increase and peace of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end. Not just that this kingdom would continue to exist, not just that the peace and salvation which comes to the prince of peace would not end, but the increase of it. And it will continue to grow. It will continue to conquer until it is conquered over every other kingdom. Where every other kingdom is appointed to pass away. Here is the one kingdom that will endure forever. The kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Mighty promises here. And if we would take those we would come to see that we live in the most amazing times, the times in which these are being fulfilled. And with that, I'd like to turn to my second thought. What it means that these promises are being fulfilled. Well, I think that if you would pay close attention to the words that are spoken by our Lord upon his resurrection, when he gives what has been called the Great Commission, you can see that when he speaks, he is expressing how it is that all of the promises of God's covenant with David and his line, all of the promises of a kingdom that would conquer all the nations of the world, 
it is all brought to bear upon our existence as the people of God under the new covenant. And it is all brought to bear upon our mission in the world. Look at Matthew 28 again. Begin reading at verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Notice that the power is given to him. This is not that power which he has naturally as the Son of God, sharing in common with the Father and the Holy Spirit, where he is God of God and contains authority over all things. Now here is authority which he receives as our mediator and savior, as the one who has conquered over sin upon the cross and risen again to great glory and might, he receives. And what he receives is all power in heaven and on earth. All power. None is left out. There is no part of this whole creation that is left outside of his claims as king. There is not one blade of grass, as one theologian says, that Jesus does not point to and say, mine. All power in heaven and on earth. No power is greater. And any power that would oppose him is opposing the almighty power of God himself. For he is appointed that all enemies of Christ shall be destroyed. Now keep on reading. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, of course, your translation might say more accurately, disciple rather than teach in the first place. Go ye therefore and disciple. And so there you have the statement about what our mission is. We are not just existing for our own sake. We are not just existing for our own comfort. We exist for the glory of this King of Kings. And he tells us not to just remain where we are, but to go. To leave our location and to go where we need to carry out this mission of discipling. We are a discipling people because the church of Jesus Christ is the very heart of the kingdom of of Christ and the kingdom of Christ is not just a kingdom that exists it is a kingdom that conquers and overcomes all opposition and it's not merely note this it's not mere that we are to disciple it's not merely we're to get a disciple here and a disciple there look what it says disciple all nations all nations I put to you, congregation, that so often the view of Christians is so very small. What is it the case with the churches today here in our part of the world? What do we count as success so often? Well, so often we count as success if we can just keep our numbers the way they are. 
the amount of people who've traditionally come, well, we consider that a success. And we, we rightly, of course, regard the, the growth within the church through families and through children, a wonderful blessing of the Lord, very rightly so. And of course, in God's providence, he sometimes moves people from one church to another. We don't despise it. And indeed, we welcome all who would come to a church like ours. But if you look at the big picture so often, it is just the case that what counts for church growth is Christians moving from one church to another church. And that's not what is in view here. It says, disciple all nations. The mission, you see, is not to snatch a disciple here or a disciple there, but to disciple the nations. We'd be more on target if we would say our mission is not to disciple the people who open, uh, who come into the doors on Sunday, although it is that. But more properly, it's to disciple the city of London. To disciple the souls here, to bring them under subjection unto the crown rights of King Jesus. More properly, it's to disciple Ontario, all of the cities, all of the counties, all of the towns. No, more properly, the entire nation of Canada itself. It all belongs unto Jesus. And the calling of the church is to disciple Canada. Notice how he puts it there. Disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. What a mighty, what a lofty mission. What a grand thing to disciple the nations. And what does he equip us with? Well, here's some water to baptize. Here are some Bibles to teach. I want you to teach them, you see. I want you to disciple them in this way, that they would observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Leave nothing out. Don't leave out the parts that are hard. Don't leave out the parts that are unpopular. No, teach it all. It's in that way that they will truly be my disciples when they're brought under the commands of my lordship. So we baptize and so we teach the full counsel of God. But we look at the mission that is before us and say, how is this even realistic? How is this possible? How is it that what is taking place here has any connection to the lofty promises of which we've spoken? How is it any one of us could expect that the great promises of the scriptures, that the nations will be brought under the crown rights of King Jesus, that those could be realized through this pitiful means of teaching and baptizing? Well, it's all bound up with that last thing that is said, right? Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. You see, congregation, that actually is enough. That actually is enough. For if Christ is who he says, then all of the things that are spoken about him, they hold true also today. You may imagine that because of setbacks that you may see in the history of the church or the spiritual condition of this country we live in or even uh, that which 
exists currently in our own congregation. You might say that this is just not realistic. We can't aim this high. We can't have a view towards uh, seeking the fulfillment of the promises of the kingdom through the mission that Christ has given unto us. And yet, the Bible seems so very clear that where Jesus Christ has spoken and where Jesus Christ is with us through his word and spirit, we have no right to doubt. So we see that these things are being fulfilled. Consider that small group of fishermen and women and and other poor and needy Christians there clustered together on that mountain when they heard Jesus say those things. It says in verse 17, some doubt it. Well, well might they doubt. These are, these are amazing things. And Jesus has risen from the dead. And how can these things be so? And yet that same little fledgling church, when the Holy Spirit was poured forth at Pentecost, became a bold and a mighty group of witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. 3,000 converted on that day of Pentecost. And so throughout all those years of persecution, being strewn out throughout the Roman Empire, yet they held firm to this promise of the kingdom and they saw it fulfilled, congregation. They saw people from every nation, tribe, and color coming under the sway of Jesus Christ. They saw sinners saved from the guilt and power of sin. They saw people converted. They saw people bind themselves unto the Lord and to give their whole lives unto him. And you play the tape, you look out throughout history, how it was that that small group of fishermen and slaves and poor people, they evangelized until the point where the whole Roman Empire was officially Christian. Yes, a lot of worldliness, a lot of corruption, a lot of problems, but there was a destruction of all that paganism that used to reign. For Jesus Christ delivered that mighty power unto them. You see other setbacks. You see the growth of superstition and formalism and heresy in the visible church until you have the Roman Catholic religion taking form and persecuting all the true saints of God. But does not God raise up a Luther? Doesn't he raise up a Calvin? Doesn't he raise up those who will stand for the truth and pour forth his spirit in great revival such that the gospel is recovered and the mission continues? Where you look today, the church of Jesus Christ here in North America, so often spiritually dead, so often driven to sectarianism and isolationism and pettiness and, and weakness. And we look around and we see that the enemies of Christ seem to be getting more powerful, more deadly, more zealous. But I tell you that Jesus didn't say until this or that happened. He said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. And so I say to you today, congregation, that this mission will never end until it is seen through to completion. One of the verses that I've often thought about, it actually appears three times in slightly different wording, in Numbers 14 and Isaiah 11. But let me show you what it says in Habakkuk 2, verse 14. 
For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, that's a promise that we, I think, can agree will be filled in perfection when Jesus Christ returns. That when Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, then all things will be made due, and there will only be the perfect knowledge of God covering all of creation. But when you look at these promises, it's not merely that will just pop into existence on the day of judgment, although... The Lord will do many great things on that great and terrible day. But it has begun now. Christ has begun to reign. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And upon his coming and upon his death and resurrection, he has pledged that the increase of his government will see no end. That all the nations will hear the voice of the king speaking to them and drawing them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so we Christians have no right to despair. Let me just say three words to you. One is this word, faith, faith. Believe this word. Do not act like an atheist and just say, well, the minister is just saying so many things from the Bible. He's just reading verses and then we just go home and pretend nothing happened. No, these are promises and they will be fulfilled. Believe them. Let them shape you. Let them be the bedrock of your life. Christ is building his church. His kingdom is without end. Second word, hope hope. Easy to get discouraged in these times, easy to fall into despair, but where Christ has pronounced such promises in our hearing and where he has actually brought them into fulfillment through his coming and the building of his church, no right to despair. Take hope, take courage, see to your duty, man your posts, See to it that upon the Lord's return, you are busy in the work that he has appointed you to do. Third word, love. Love. It is one thing to withhold the precious word of the gospel when you have no promises that such words will have any effect. If you had no promise that speaking of Jesus Christ would save anyone, well, it would be one thing to be silent. But where you have such an array of promises that his kingdom will expand, that his peace will expand and increase and increase in abundance, how much cause have you to express that love by speaking a word for your king, Christian? Speaking a word and knowing that by his power he can draw that sinner unto the kingdom of light. How much of you to strive for their souls in prayer, naming them before the throne of grace and not letting them go as long as breath endures? most of all, how much love for the king. He is glorious. He is beautiful. He is worthy to receive the reward of his sufferings. And so whatever cost he would have you and I to pay, it is but a small thing in the grand scheme. We must 
Bring up the horizon of our sight towards this big picture. Christ redeeming his people from all nations and bringing all nations under his sway. Let us see to the mission he's given unto us.